Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm MS web editor Caroline Crampton, standing in for your usual host Helen Lewis, who's off in Japan, lucky her. Every week, we will be bringing you an exciting mixture of discussion, interviews and stories. This week, we discuss the ongoing problems of the Tory party, talk feminism with Holly Baxter of The Agenda, Sophie Elmhurst and Philip Morn discuss the new novel from James Salter, and Alex Hearn explains for those who don't know what's going on with Tumblr and Yahoo. editor of the Staggers, George Eaton, to talk a little bit about what's been happening with the Tory party in the last week. Raf, you've got a, a piece in this week's magazine um, arguing that David Cameron was the future once and can't be again. Certainly that it will be uh, yeah, difficult for him uh, to be it again. I think the, 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 the subject that I was trying to, to get into is this tricky question of why it is that Tories hate Cameron so much. I mean, it's interesting. They, it's not that I mean, a lot of them are sort of anxious and they think they're not going to win the election, but a, a small, hardcore of them, they really passionately hate him. I mean, it, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, and then also there are, there are quite a lot of Conservative voters who are defecting to UKIP. They also hate him. And, and what is it? what is this treason that they feel that he's committed? Um, obviously, he didn't win an election and he promised he would and that, that annoys them. But what I'm interested in is the sort of sense of culture war sort of beneath all of this, which is that actually Cameron's leadership, when he when he presented himself as a moderniser, as, you know, as the future, uh, it was all very much in the context of, of the sort of late 90s and the noughties, the sort of swinging decade, the boom, kind of cool Britannia, it was a sort of metropolitan, cosmopolitan impulse. And uh, throughout all that time, there are a bunch of people, not a majority in the country, but quite an important segment of people who felt marginalised, culturally alienated from all of that. And they sort of disoriented by the fact that suddenly, you know, homosexuality wasn't a grubby little secret anymore, that women were allowed to have jobs and get the same sort of pay as men. Uh, it's a sort of sense of, of having been sort of pushed to the margins by a sort of, as they see it, bossy, effeminate, multicultural, liberal, new establishment. And when the Tories were in opposition... It was you could sort of they, these people could hope that they would there would be restitution as soon as they got a conservative prime minister. Um, then as soon as you get a conservative prime minister, and it turns out to be David Bloody Cameron with his Notting Hill metrosexuals <laughs> who go around calling Tory activists swivel-eyed loonies and legislating for gay marriage. What was a resentment becomes an insurrection, and that's what I think has happened to David Cameron. That's what I think has happened to the UKIP vote substantially, not exclusively, um, and that's why by the sort of thesis to wrap it up is that. He struggles to be modern now because his definition of what it is to be modern is one that the Conservative Party hates. He's failed to do it and it belongs to a different era. And George, we've seen big 
rebellions in the Conservative Party recently on gay marriage and on Europe. Um, do you think that sort of informs what Rasmus been talking about, this kind of culture war idea? I think it does. I think, however, that this may be as bad as it gets for Cameron. That's certainly the hope among his his advisers that the economy is returned to growth, inflation's falling, uh, the gay marriage bill has gone through the Commons now. He said on Europe, I'm going to stick to this referendum question, I'm going to stick to this date, I'm not going to be moved on that. Uh, it remains to be seen whether his backbenchers uh, give him the benefit of the doubt on that. Um, but given that Labour has you know, seemingly failed to take advantage of Tory disarray, there's actually a sort of sense of, of quiet optimism. And I think that came across in the interview Cameron gave on the Today programme this week, where he sounded, you know, again, very polished, very assured, given uh, all the difficulties he's had. I think that was a, a reminder of why um, some Tories are actually feeling more positive about their election chances than they were before. I think that that, that is true to the extent that that is a, a, a sensible, reasonable, rational analysis of the situation, particularly the point that Labour just, just don't seem to be able to capitalise on, on the weakness and the failure of the Conservative Party. The problem is that there is a small but quite important kernel of Tories who aren't at all rational or reasonable about this. And, <laughs> and the thing that I keep hearing from Tories is that you know, some of this UKIP fancying that goes on it's like militant in the 80s for the Labour Party that you can't argue with these people and you can't reason with them and they want Cameron to lose um there's a sort of revolutionary defeatism in it that by the time if you if you actually bring the whole house crashing down then from the ashes like a phoenix rising you'll have the ideologically pure conservative party you've always craved um I completely agree that that as you say, so a dispassionate view of it would say, well, look, Ed Miliband's not cutting through effectively. Cameron, he's very good at coming across as sensible and really reasonable. And every time the Tories do unite behind him, Labour have a little wobble. But I just can easily see this momentum behind just constant destabilisation, irritation, and with a good sort of hardcore of contempt for Cameron, continuing to undermine him right up until the election. Why aren't we talking about Labour? Surely Labour should be capitalising on this. They should be having ideas that everyone's talking about. Why aren't we? I think it's because the party is in a position now where, because of its consistent opinion poll lead, it's, it's coming under a lot more scrutiny mm. earlier than expected. And um, you've got Ed Bulls maintaining this, this iron discipline uh, which 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 Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did before '97, where they're not just sort of throwing around spending commitments that they're going to wait and see what the economic situation is before before showing their hand. And I don't think anyone expects things to see the possible desirables for Labour to put out a a shadow budget or a shadow spending review. But what they do need to do is to set out sort of indicative. Uh, sexy policies that get people discussing mm. what a Labour government would look like, some of the emblematic changes that it would make just to say, look, the Tories are out of power, the, the, a reasonable centre-left social democratic government is back in. They're not really doing that at the moment. So I think that's why. I think there's... You need to plant the seed with voters, yeah. don't they? Yeah, no. I think, I, um, to be blunt about it, I think Labour have made three significant strategic mistakes. Um, the first is uh, thinking that which are all reasonable assumptions. Um, one is is thinking that because you had a five-year term parliament, fixed-term parliament, um, and a, a coalition that was going to go that long, you had time to sort of 
to gradually assemble a project and then reveal it in the run-up to the election. Um, it, it turns out that the coalition have been so weak and the Tories have been divided and have been so rubbish in so many ways that, as George says, the question of, you know, well, are you ready yet, has come along much earlier than they thought. They thought they'd have more time. The second strategic error, I think, was thinking that because of the, the, the financial crisis, because it was a failure of markets and capitalism, opened up this tremendous space where people would start to think of more social democratic thoughts about what had to happen. Um, and that's just not that's not happening. I mean, the, 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 they didn't factor in a populist right-wing insurgency. UKIP is there mopping up a load of straight Tory votes. So they just got that completely wrong. Um, and the third one is the assumption that the Lib Dems were in completely out of the picture, that the Lib Dems, because they were, they'd campaigned from the left, governed for on the right, that they would just evaporate and therefore there was a court, Labour court vote would be boosted massively and the Tories would um, also um, struggle because the Lib Dems wouldn't be able to sustain coalition. The, the Lib Dems actually, I mean their poll ratings are dismal but they're still bloody in government and mm. they, they can hold 30-40 seats perhaps at the next election. Um, so for all those reasons Labour are now in a position where previously if the government were looking rubbish, then that was a measure of how much potential Labour had. Now, if the government looked rubbish, that's a measure of Ed Miliband's weakness in failing to capitalise on it. So Ed Miliband's fortunes are now weirdly kind of pegged to David Cameron's. When Cameron is down, Ed is down as well, mm -hmm. because people are thinking, well, if it can't be them, why isn't it you? And the answer is because you don't look ready. Mm. And obviously the big story uh, towards the end of this week and continuing over the weekend is this attack in Woolwich and we've had statements from all the political parties the political leaders and various religious groups and so on as well but what do you think the political fallout from this is going to be George? I would say at this point there, there are two points of political significance the first is that it's a chance for David Cameron to be prime ministerial to look state most to people agree he's rather good at doing this he is good at these big statements I thought the uh, statement he made at the press conference with Francois Hollande last night was as ever impressively fluid and, and, and clear. And after the internecine warfare of the last few weeks over Europe and gay marriage, it's a chance for him to remind everyone, I'm prime minister, I'm in charge, and I'm going to ensure that the government maintains its, uh, carries out its primary duty, which is the preservation of, of law and order and the defence of the public. The second uh, point of significance is, is around the debate, the security debate and the balance between security and liberty. It was notable on that John Reid, former Labour Defence Secretary, former Home Secretary and uh, Lord Carlyle have already been saying this shows the need for the communications data bill, otherwise known as the Snoopers Charter. That was left out of the Queen's speech after a huge dust up between the Tories and the Liberal Democrats earlier. Theresa May had previously said that those who opposed it we're putting politics before lives. It will be interesting to see whether the more authoritarian wing of the Conservative Party now starts saying, actually, the rules of the games have changed and this shows you know, we can't be uh, complacent about the terrorist threat and you need to sort of, you, you can't be uh, held back by um, sort of the feeble liberal concerns of, of Clegg and Co. What do you think, Raph? Do you think Clegg and Co are going to fold on this one? Uh, I, to be honest, I'm not sure about that. I, don't, I certainly don't, I don't think there will be much major political impact from this, to be honest. I mean, unless a very a bigger conspiracy is revealed than currently looks to be the case at the mm. moment. There isn't 
it's, it's obviously it's too early to say, but it doesn't look like this is a, a, a sort of internationally organised labyrinthine conspiracy. I mean, it looks more like a mad person with a sharp knife. Um, and I just would always remember in these circumstances that what feel like pretty massive things, big news dominating events can happen and there's a lot of sound and fury and then normal services kind of resumed. I mean, you think about the riots mm. a couple of years ago. I mean, how big was that? It was huge, epic. It was the biggest story ever. We all wrote and commissioned and rewrote things saying everything has changed. The whole world has been turned upside down. And then actually Nothing a few months changed. later, it's exactly the same. So, I mean, you know, they'll, it'll be big over the weekend and people will refer to it and it'll have obviously legislative and sort of micro-political impact um but you know as chairman Mao once famously said you know before the revolution fetch would carry water after the revolution fetch would carry water the basics stay the same thanks very much george and Ralph. Lucy Coslett is one half of the Vagenda uh, website and who also writes the V-Spot blog for the New Statesman and various other things for us. Um, hello Holly. Hello. Um, and we're going to talk this week about a piece that Rhiannon and Holly wrote for the website about the five main issues facing modern feminism, which is a topic that's been debated online every which way that there is. But I really admired this piece for its clarity and also its plurality. You know, it included lots of different things, lots of different people. There was, in my opinion, really very little that you could disagree with what they'd identified. And I thought it would be really interesting for our podcast listeners to hear uh, Holly talk a bit more about that. So one of the first things that you identified in your piece, Holly, is that modern feminism is quite a difficult phrase to yeah, talk about. It definitely is. Um, I think... We sort of, um, when we talk about modern feminism, we often get picked up by people who, firstly, people who say that feminism isn't needed anymore, which is a sort of predictable thing to come across. And then um, on the other side, we get sort of very staunch, sometimes radical feminists saying that um, feminism isn't feminism unless it's a specific brand. And it's now time to sort of whittle it down to that specific brand since we've achieved um, things like the vote and... Um, and other things when people were more inclusive. So I think it's difficult to know what modern feminism is. And um, actually, I think what me and Rhiannon felt was that um, we were wasting too much time on the blog and on social media discussing what it was. And so we wanted to just sort of pick out five clear issues that we want to campaign on and just say modern feminism is all of this stuff and we should be sort of campaigning across it. Mm. So the, the first thing that you picked out was the division of domestic labour, which you said otherwise known as the final feminist frontier. Um, tell us a little bit more about, about why you picked that. It seems such a um, small issue, to, especially to people who don't suffer from, um, from having their domestic labour sort of meted out to them unfairly. But um, it's actually a really, really important issue because um, there's still this sort of overhanging stereotype about women being natural carers and um, natural homemakers. And we don't realise, even often in very fair relationships with feminist partners, how often it swings back to that, how we see again and again women reporting that they do 
at least 60% of the domestic labour in any given household and how much that can then sort of bleed into other areas of their life. They end up um, putting their careers on hold, they end up doing most of the childcare and that sort of ends up being a very, very, um, a sort of um, a thing that really holds women back, which you might not expect. But it's important to keep bringing that issue up again and again, I think, because it seems so small and it's actually so incredibly important. What kind of things, you've proposed a few, but what kind of things do you think can help with that? Well, one thing that um, we're sort of very aware of is that, um, for one thing, if men want to get involved with um, the domestic life more, there has to be fairer um, sort of fairer policies surrounding maternity and paternity leave and um, so sort of a model that they have in Sweden where they have um, really subsidized childcare and um, excellent paternity leave has seen that become a much more equal society and the percentage of women saying now that they do a lot um, more equal amount of um, domestic labor and so we really identified those as the two main things that we need to concentrate on because when you put policies like that in place, obviously you'll find that most people do want to divide things equally, but within a sort of social structure that doesn't allow it, of course it can't happen. I think I saw a proposal once for the idea of just, rather than maternity or paternity, shared parental leave, leaving it up to each couple to split it as they see fit. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a really good idea, although it also, you know, it brings up the issue of if you bring that policy in in a society that expects the mother to take more maternity leave, then perhaps it wouldn't um, work out as much. Perhaps it would end up that maternity leave was still massive and paternity leave was less. And also, I think men might end up falling victim to a stereotype of themselves that they might be sort of emasculated if they take the majority of the leave. So Find it difficult way. to go to their employer and say, I want to take this leave because I want to be the main... Yeah, definitely. So it seems like perhaps at first you have to have a sort of stricter structure where it's half and half. Mm. Um, and another thing that you've uh, sort of shone the light on here is the glass ceiling. And this feeds into a little bit what we were saying before about domestic labour inequality. But this is specifically in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are quick to tell you that the glass ceiling doesn't exist anymore. But um, as we keep reading and hearing and finding out from people on the agenda, um, it's very true that 22% is like the percentage at which women sort of level out in higher positions in law, in journalism, in government, places like that. And um, with the agenda, when we first started it, we didn't actually believe in um, positive discrimination necessarily. But the more that we've um, sort of looked into it and the more experiences we've heard from women who are actually in often male-dominated environments, like we had one quite shocking piece from a, a woman, a female engineer, um, and the sexism that she experiences, the more we've come to believe in positive discrimination as um, the sort of lesser of two evils, mm. the greater evil being the situation now, because um, without positive discrimination, people won't change. And so that's something that we definitely think um, needs to be put in place to get rid of the glass ceiling, at least temporarily. So things like um, on company boards, uh, you know, a number of seats must be filled by women, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And um, you should have to explain why, as a company, you don't have women at the top. I think it should be just mm. automatic. 
if um, you have a terrible representation of women at the top, you should have to. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Go and explain that. Because mm. obviously there are places where perhaps you won't have women applying for jobs, but that's no reason why you shouldn't have to explain that, that won't damage you. Mm. And because I, I know there's been a lot of debate back and forth over the years about um, Labour's use of all-women shortlists for um, particular constituencies. And again, like you, I initially started out thinking that that was, that was unequal and that was wrong. But having moved more in political circles, I've also come to the same conclusion that it is the lesser of two evils. If the alternative is that women don't put them forward for seats, themselves forward for seats, or if they do, they don't get selected then we've got to do something about it. Yeah, that's definitely, and you have to think about an entire culture that sort of doesn't allow women to be confident enough to put themselves forward for that. It's not necessarily that they aren't getting there um, because they don't have the talent. And also, um, you know, there are a lot of women who um, are against all women shortlists and things like that, who um, say, I want to get somewhere on my own merit, but it's like, well, good luck out there doing that. If, um, if there isn't positive discrimination because you may have all the merit in the world but you're still in a society where you probably won't get, well, 22% chance that you will get to the top. You're not being judged on your merit, are you? You've been judged on your gender first and then... Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a clumsy way of addressing the imbalance but it's the best way we have at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and social inequality also somewhat related to that is something you picked out as well. This refers to quite closely, I think, to the caring issue, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we started out looking at um, sort of carers and how um, obviously that goes back to the idea of women as natural carers and how um, the most, um, the largest amount of carers are women. Um, but we're also looking at basically all strata of society. So, um, you know, the people most at risk of, like refugees most at risk of death are women. Um, Bangladeshi women are um, most at risk of um, disability, especially in their older years. Um, there are huge disparities, basically, amongst um, all, all sort of um, all levels, including sort of, um, for instance, lesbian women often talk about having more um, experiencing more discrimination than um, gay men, and I think it's just important to um, to sort of realise how these things intersect with each other, how um, how being a woman can often exacerbate another prejudice that's being held against you. And so that's also why we think that fighting on many fronts is probably the key to modern feminism, mm. because social inequality is obviously so entrenched, it's usually made worse if you're a woman. And so we definitely need all of these different um, types of women to come and campaign on their own terms as well. Mm. And just finally, the fifth thing that you've pointed out is uh, violence against women, which I think includes things like domestic violence, but also things like a kind of banter culture in the workplace and so on, um, which is something that I think it would be quite hard to find a woman who's not experienced some 
however small some form of that yeah. um, but it's also perhaps one of the hardest things to do anything about yeah definitely I suppose so but at the same time it's very difficult for instance to um, to tell people to stop saying things like I'd smash that and things because um, you know you can tell someone to stop saying that in a certain environment but that doesn't obviously change them saying it um, in their own homes or amongst um, groups of people who they think are sort of on their same level um, I suppose again like the media the most important thing is just to be pointing it out because mm. you can't really control people and what they say you'll just push what they say into a different sphere but pointing out the effects of that language and sometimes just breaking down that language when people use it um, unwittingly is really important and obviously violence against women is a massive issue um, you know that horrible statistic that two women in the UK die at the hands of their partner or former male partner every week and so um, the fact that you know things like Facebook not taking violence against women as a serious or gender-based violence as a serious um, thing to report those all lead into a sort of culture that allows violence against women that sees women as victims natural victims perhaps and um, so I think yeah pointing it out is mainly all we can do at the moment apart from obviously um, doing the huge sort of women's aid things um, setting up safe places for women who do experience violence and things like that domestic violence charities are doing amazing things and they suffered terribly during the recession and again pointing that out once you start pointing that out you do see that donations and things come mm. rolling in so it's really about continuing awareness about that because again violence against women hasn't gone away and a lot of people do seem to believe that it has that it it's somehow solved or fixed yeah or that we live in a society where that wouldn't happen or that there are certain kinds of violence which are sort of um, justifiable and we don't hold people to account who are violent towards women that much as well everybody brings up the sort of Chris Brown Rihanna example mm, yes. in sort of popular culture and how Chris Brown you know he obviously he obviously beat up his girlfriend basically and um, he was then seen as a as a fallen man who had um, gone wrong on his path and then he um, he wrote a couple of songs about how he had and other pop stars wrote things about how they were reformed just like Chris Brown and um, it became sort of quite a forgiving culture for violence against women which you know might in some ways be encouraging if it wasn't also a culture that was so judgmental towards Rihanna mm. and sort of um, put the fault at least of staying with him at her door and then sort of made snide remarks about how sexually explicit she was, etc. And um, so seeing all of that come together mm. was a bit depressing, really. Sort of that approaching that kind of she's asking for it territory, which yeah. is just so completely abhorrent. Exactly. And obviously they're not al allowed to say outright this sort of thing, celebrity magazines anymore. Um, but it doesn't mean that they can't imply it heavily. Mm. And it's no less damaging. Exactly. Yeah. But there is this, this recurring question of should we put aside our, our differences on some things in order to campaign on one particular thing? And you're arguing, no, we can fight on many fronts at the same time. Yeah, I think um, 
I just see feminism as being um, a great sort of progressive force in society at the moment that's composed of so many different groups. And there's a lot of argument about um, conflating everything together and um, then fighting from one front on all issues. And I just think that's, um, that's a bit of a sort of um, generic and not very nice way of thinking about feminism. It seems much more... Um, it seems much more sensible to continue fighting on different fronts than it does to discuss what brand of feminism we need to we need to all hold so that we can fight on all of these fronts. It seems irrelevant really to me that you would need to find a brand of feminism that necessarily incorporates every single one of these things. When people are when people are individually targeting the glass ceiling targeting um, racial inequality, targeting sort of um, prejudice against homosexuals and violence against women and all sorts of things. It's, it's totally unnecessary to be, um, to be sidelined by, by finding out a brand that fits everything. Well, thank you very much. You can, uh, you can find Holly and Rhiannon's column on the New Statesman website every Monday. Philip Morn and I'm joined by Sophie Elmhurst, features editor of New Statesman, to talk about James Salter. The American novelist James Salter turns 88 next month and he has just published his sixth novel, uh, the first in 35 years, All That Is. Um, Sophie, you interviewed James recently. Um, how was that? It was great. Um, as you say, for a kind of going on 88-year-old, he was uh, pretty sprightly and um, I think is really enjoying this moment of pretty widespread recognition, really, after what feels like a long pause. A lot of fuss, um, quite rightly, has been made out of this novel, which is um, an astonishing piece of work, not in its own right. And I think a lot of people, and I think he feels that a lot of people have maybe made it a lot of it um, in an almost sort of patronising way because of his great age. But it, it stands on its own feet um, as a piece of work, I think. Well, I, I've read Light Years, I've read Sport in the Past Time. Um, and what's almost, what's sort of most resonant about those books for me is, is the way that he writes. I mean, is that sort of continued in this new book? Is well, the signature style still there? No, it's a really interesting question. We spoke about this when I met him. Um, I mean, Light Years particularly has that incredibly sort of, uh, lyrical, mm. almost self-conscious style. Um, which he really lets go of, actually, in this. And I asked him about it, and it's it's entirely purposeful. He, um, I've got the sort of transcript in the interview in front of me, and he talks about how he made a little effort in this book not to be so linguistically rich in language, um, to take the focus off the language a little bit. And I think that's really interesting, and it, you certainly get that it's a it's a it's a looser, freer, sort of more flowing style, I suppose, rather than that quite heightened, um, yeah, sort of self consciousness, I suppose, of light years. Mm. And the the character at the centre of this, Philip Bowman. Yeah. Um, I've. Um... I've written some notes down here, and I've written Don Draper. Um, <laughs> is that is that an able comparison? Do you think? Um, I, well, there's definitely something of. I, I mean, there is definitely a comparison to be drawn there. I think one of the things that Salter is. Oh, by the way, a note on the name. We talked about names. Um, 
and how he really struggles to name his characters, oh, yeah. and which was quite an interesting discussion. He makes these long, long lists, and Philip Bowman, I sort of, you know, doesn't seem that remarkable a name in a way. And I wondered how he'd come up with it, but it was just the list technique. Um, no, I mean, I think I think what really marks out Salter is, which is a kind of madman type. Um, uh, preoccupation as well is that attention to detail to surfaces to the look and the feel of things you know the amount of meals and whiskey and hotel rooms and um, sensations that you get mm. in Salter's book is incredibly um, well they're just there are a lot of them and it's a very kind of rich world and and in terms of I, I suppose the particular comparison in terms of character with Don Draper is that sense of someone sort of moving through time with the world almost happening around them and to them. They're almost that sort of passive figure. And obviously they have their kind of personal relationships and and sort of agency. But what Salter manages to do so well is, is, is remove almost the protagonist from that sense that they are creating all the action in the book. They are just part of this much wider world, which is is developing you know is rushing past them and around them at all the, all the time and i think there is something of that in in don draper as well and finally we have a review of the new book by leo robson in the magazine this week and leo writes everywhere salter turns he finds facts and anecdotes and fragrances to pass on to you you soon stop distinguishing between the essential and the indolent and that already you know that chimes with me having read some of his previous work however he also says that, um, as with his previous work, what gives this central protagonist a sense of purpose is sex. Did sex come up in your interview? And, you know, some of us may have wondered whether the man being 87, they, they would have been less uh, <laughs> in the new book, but I'm given the impression that's not the oh, case. Oh, no, it's still, it's still very much there. I mean, yeah, the sensual in... Mm. I mean, I almost describe it more about that, about sensuality rather than about sort of um i mean the sport in the pastime was obviously such a sort of erotically charged book mm. um and it's 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 not on that on that level um but it's there in the in a similar way to how it is in light years and that it's uh, you know as it is in all our lives part of our lives and and he's not afraid to weave that into his books in a kind of very um well vivid way i suppose but it's yeah it, it's not quite as prominent perhaps <laughs> thanks sophie I'm joined by Alex Hearn, who is usually referred to as our resident young person, um, to talk about Tumblr. And um, Alex has written in the magazine this week about David Karp, who uh, who founded Tumblr, um, a man who's just inherited or just come into a lot of money uh, and is only 26 years old. This yeah. is alarming. It, it is. He was, I think, just 19 when he started uh, Davidville, the company that would go on to become Tumblr. Yeah. Uh, his, his first employee, a man called Marco Armand, who uh, also coded the, the popular iOS app, Instapaper. Um, Marco didn't actually know David Karp's age for a couple of years after and only found out when Karp let it slip in a videoed interview. He, he'd spent two years working for a man. And this, this is the thing about David Karp. He's, he never banked on that. He never sold himself as a young entrepreneur, this child star. Mm. He was always someone who put what he made first, um, which is... Well, which is why Tumblr is so impressive, because it was it, it came out to a 1.1 billion valuation on the back of what Tumblr is, which is a very good social network, a very good product and something used by 200 million people worldwide. Well, that was what I was going to ask next. For those not in the know, um, what is Tumblr? Well, it's quite interesting. It looks from the outside like a blog network. 
uh, if you go on any individual Tumblr, which is basically the noun of them, uh, it looks like a blog. It's a series of posts sequentially, uh, chronologically listed. Um, usually there's a common theme, like they'll, there's a lot of GIFs that you see on Tumblr. They tend to be done by young people. But it's got this hidden social network to it. Um, and it is actually, in a way, one of the biggest and most important social networks there is. Mm. It's not Facebook or Twitter levels, but it easily competes with things like Pinterest or Foursquare, which are darlings of the tech world. But the thing is, it's always been a social network for outsiders. Um, David Karp obviously was young, didn't really play the Silicon Valley game. It's always been headquartered in New York. Mm. And it's never really been adopted by these uh, tech media darlings like Robert Scoble or John Gruber. It's always been this weirdy outsidery thing. Um, I mean, well, I, I want to pick. You, I want to stop you there because I really it's, it's it's music to my ears to hear that Tumblr is this sort of uh, this niche that exists on the periphery. Because, as you well know, I am a great fan of Tumblr, and the reason I am a fan of Tumblr is because I follow uh, you know a lot of a lot of sort of book blogs and and kind of ideas blogs and blogs that go into a lot of history. There are a great deal of archive blogs. Um, at times, it just feels like I'm listening to sort of, you know, the, the, the chatter coming from the publishing houses. And this is great because I get a sense of what's coming up in the future. I know people have their own sort of communities on, on Tumblr. You know, it does seem to have a really personal sort of feel to it. Yeah, I mean, it's adopted some of that from the social networks that it's sort of usurped. So the live journal fandom aspect of things, people getting really a bit too in-depth about sort of multimedia properties like Harry Potter or Marvel comics. Yeah, they've now moved wholesale and that's where you'll find the fan fiction communities meeting and the people who draw slightly pornographic fan art of various uh, media things. But I think it's mostly that the thing about a social network is when you look at it, describing how it, it works and what it does only gets you half the way to understanding it because the rest of it is made by the community. Mm. And the Tumblr community grew up from a very different place that most other social networks did. It wasn't firstly adopted by tech people. It wasn't like Facebook springing out of Harvard. Um, it sprung out of this weirdy scene. It was still still begun in the tech world, but very quickly the community and the way you use Tumblr came to be focused around art and around music and around creative writing. And also actually, interestingly, around social justice. Mm. There's a strong uh, social justice element to Tumblr. It's where a lot of uh, popularization of things like bell hooks, uh, intersectionality and trans rights. Uh, a lot of the popularization of that began at Tumblr. But it's also very pretty and easy to use. Well, this, this is a basic a, point. But it's, easy is... to make a very, it's easy to make a very pretty site yeah, with. Exactly. And compared to like MySpace, mm. which was certainly in America the home of the outsiders before then, MySpace was ugly as sin. Uh, Facebook, Twitter don't let you change really anything. Tumblr is personalizable, but it also encourages an element of beauty. That's true. And uh, if any listeners are interested, uh, the New Statesman is on Tumblr. And is uh, beautiful. And is beautiful. So uh, you, can, you can follow us on there. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Phil. Today's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Holly Baxter, Raphael Baer, George Eaton, Sophie Elmhurst, Alex Hurd and Philip Moore. It was produced by Yozushi and our theme music was taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week.
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.